0: Hello, Witchwave listener. I am so thrilled to finally unveil the Witchwave Patreon. By becoming a Witchwave patron, you'll get to access Witchwave Plus, which has bonus episodes and ad-free full-length episodes. You'll also be able to join our members-only digital coven, where we'll be doing live video chats, sharing witchy news and tips, and where you can meet other Witchwave kindred spirits. Head on over to patreon.com slash witchwave to check out all of this and many other rewards. And thank you so much in advance for choosing to support the show. I truly appreciate it, and I can't wait to make some more magic with you. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Alter New Orleans, your new favorite ritual in women's clothing. Rising up out of the magic, artistry, and decadent costume culture of New Orleans, Alter beckons to the inner witch in all of us. Elegantly weaving together divine floating shapes with commanding feminine lines, every stitch of altar's garments is imbued with a unique feminist alchemy, lovingly handmade in the heart of the Crescent City. Rin Wilson, the owner and founder of Alter, takes tremendous pride in her mission to champion local artists, incorporating their work into many of her alluring designs. Rin is also fiercely dedicated to offering her featured artists fair pay for their talents. I love that. On a personal note, I own a number of garments from Alter, and they are utterly gorgeous and make me feel like a severely stylish prismatic witch. And now, you lucky listeners can get 10% off your first order at AlternEwOrleans.com by using code WHICHWAVE. So check out AlternEwOrleans.com. That's A L T A R, NewOrleans.com. Use offer code WHICHWAVE for 10% off and follow Alter at AlternEwOrleans on Instagram. Alter New Orleans. Worship what you wear. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Welcome to the Witch Wave and happy April Fool's Day. Now in the past, this day is one that I've traditionally had some discomfort with. The idea that things are not as they seem and that Any moment one could be tricked or surprised is something that goes against my very wiring as a planner and as someone who is much more comfortable in a position of control, or at least the illusion of control, right? Because so much of the universe is out of our hands, not just in particularly trying times, but all the time. Life has a way of astonishing us in sweet ways and challenging ways. We as spiritual beings are not meant to stagnate. The Greek philosopher Heraclitus famously said, Change is the only constant in life. But sometimes, oftentimes, that change makes us deeply uncomfortable. It can make us feel, well, foolish. Why didn't we see this coming? Why is this happening to us? And why the hell don't we know what we're doing? When I started first engaging with tarot as a teenager, like many people before me, I was struck by the fact that the entire tarot deck begins with the fool i had this preconceived notion that a fool was somebody who would be mocked or shamed but in the story of tarot the fool actually represents something positive possibility beginner's mind The Fool character starts the entire tarot journey of self-exploration and evolution with an attitude of intrepid adventure and innovation. In many artistic renderings of this card, the Fool is a traveler equipped with only the barest of essentials slung over their shoulder. In the smith weight deck, the fool looks up and out over a mountainous landscape with arms flung wide. Right before them is a cliff, and it's open to interpretation as to whether the fool knows this or cares. Will they stop just before they reach the edge? Will they fall? Will they fly? Either way... Their body language communicates a sense of welcoming and expansion. The fool says yes to whatever comes next and fully greets each moment. I think the fool is a really powerful symbol to keep circling back to, especially in this unsettling time. Whether we are stuck at home or working on the front lines of essential businesses like our hospitals and grocery stores and post offices, challenges and fears are greeting us every day. And often in a cycle of repetition that can feel boring or exhausting or emotionally and physically crushing. The fool is here to keep us from becoming numb, to tell us to stay open to beauty and wisdom and surprise, no matter what our circumstances are. And there is no question, circumstances are brutal for many, many people right now. We may want to check out some may have to check out from time to time as a survival method. That's okay. But the fool says, this moment right here is a new beginning. A first step on a journey where we can learn and grow and deepen our connection to spirit. I'm taking this year's April Fool's Day as a time to remember to be the fool, to start over again and again with open arms and an open heart. And I am so overjoyed to share today's conversation with my guest, the Magical Scholar and Treadwell's Books Proprietor, Christina Oakley Harrington for so many reasons. On this episode, Christina speaks specifically about how witchcraft has been a source of hope and love for generations of people, especially during tough times. And as you'll hear, she reminded me that no matter where we are on our journey, we are perpetual beginners Now, I always want you to listen to Witchwave episodes in their entirety, but I especially hope you'll listen to this one until the very end, as it is brimming with Christina's beautiful, bewitching, and uplifting wisdom. But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on The Witchwire. Who is it? Witches! Courtney writes, As a newly active witch, I have also been reflecting on my childhood and where my magic and spirituality have historically shown up. And I've realized that I've had a lifelong connection with ancestors, with history, and connecting the past and present. I want to bring that into my practice with kitchen witchcraft, particularly using ancestral recipes to honor those ancestors and bring their spirit into my kitchen. I love cooking and I love witchcraft. And although Google is usually my friend, I've not been able to find many resources on kitchen witchcraft. Do you have any recommendations for building food magic practices or know of any famous kitchen witches? It would mean a lot to me to honor my grandmother in particular through her recipes and with practices that feel authentic to me. But I'm always interested in what other witches do and in working with various traditions in a respectful way to make my practice eclectic but personal. Hi, Courtney. Your question really spoke to me this week because like many of you who are staying home right now, I imagine I have been cooking a ton more lately and it's actually a real challenge for me because I am just not one of those people who loves to cook. I know, I know, I've heard it all. There's so many reasons that I should enjoy it. I'm just being honest with you. It's not my favorite thing. So I'm having to confront my anxiety and my, well, foolishness about cooking with much more regularity these days. And I've been trying to reorient myself to approaching it as a magical practice, which of course it is. Images of witches who've concoct brews and stir cauldrons come to mind, and generally speaking, nourishing our bodies is a sacred act, and we can bring our intention to all aspects of cooking, from the ingredients we choose to the tools and dishware we use. Now, my way into kitchen witchery was actually through the magic of herbs and spices, I apprenticed for several years with the green witch, Robin Rose Bennett, and one of the first classes of hers I took was called Healing Spices. Her teachings opened my eyes and my stomach to the energetic properties of plants, and had me start relating to them in a much deeper way than merely flavor, though flavor is nice too. So I can't recommend Robin Rose Bennett's books or online writings more highly if you want to focus specifically on herbal remedies. And I'll also say that Robin does travel all over the world to teach at various workshops and conferences. So once we are allowed to finally leave our homes and travel, definitely learn from Robin in person if you have the chance. In terms of more obvious witchy cookbooks, there have been a number of Wiccan cookbooks that have been released over the years. I own one that's literally called The Wicca Cookbook, but there are loads of others. But my favorite cookbook for a more seasonal, broadly pagan vibe is called Full Moon Feast by Jessica Prentice. Reading it is so comforting, and it helps me remember to approach cooking as a way to connect to nature, the seasons, and the spirit. But I love your approach of using cooking as a way to connect to your ancestors, too. Come to think of it, I've been making a lot of matzo ball soup lately using a recipe that my mom learned from her grandmother. And it helps remind me that my great-grandma Faye is here with me, even from another realm. So I think learning more about your family traditions or connecting to the cuisine of your ancestors is a beautiful way to honor them. You could even leave a small portion for them as an offering overnight or outside if you feel compelled to as well. I hope that's helpful. May you continue to make scrumptious magic. Now on to my guest. Christina Oakley Harrington is the founder and presiding spirit of Treadwell's, an esoteric bookshop in London with a feverishly devoted following. As both a former academic with a doctorate in medieval history and a decades long pagan, she also happens to be a rare example of a scholar practitioner, which is a combination I happen to find absolutely irresistible. Christina is a respected author, consultant, and authority on paganism and witchcraft, and her media appearances have included Channel 4 TV, BBC TV, BBC Radio, and BBC World Service. On this episode, Christina discusses the magic of language her favorite trailblazing women in occult history, and the ways that witchcraft can set us free. It was my absolute honor to interview this brilliant witch and dear friend of mine. And I also got to return the favor as I was a guest on the new Treadwells podcast. So do be sure to seek out that second conversation if you'd like to hear even more with the two of us. Christina joined me from Treadwells in London via Skype. Christina Oakley-Harrington, welcome to The Witch Wave. It's lovely to be here, Pam. Thank you so much for having me. I am so honored to have you, Christina. And I must say that this is a very selfishly motivated interview because we haven't seen each other in at least a year, if not longer. And so this is a lovely excuse for me just to get to check in and say hello.
1: (laughs) I'm trying to remember where we met. I think we met near nyu maybe 10 years ago it got i think it was a cafe opposite the strand bookshop but that may
0: be my imagination (sighs) as to where it was you know where it was, was no Host Star, and I can tell you that because that was my spot. I mean, that was the restaurant where my dear friend and our mutual friend Jesse Bransford and I would meet all the time for all kinds of esoteric schemings, and anytime I would want to meet someone new, that's the spot that I would uh, invite people, and sadly, it is no longer here, so all hail no Host Star. Oh, hell no, host star. So you first came into my area of consciousness via your incredible bookshop, Treadwell's Books. And I'm going to go ahead and call that a legendary bookshop because at this point, pretty much every person I know who is traveling to London and who asks me where must they go for some magic, I always tell them, oh, you have to go to Treadwell's Books because it is to my mind such a jewel and such a center of occult thinking and certainly occult literature. So can you talk a little bit about Treadwells. Why did you start it and what was your intention behind it? I founded Treadwells about 16
1: and a half years ago uh, having left decided to leave my academic career. I was a medieval historian. I was, in in English terms, a lecturer, in American terms, a professor, and I just wanted to do something different with the second half of my life, and was getting writer's block, which is no good for a scholar. So so I just, lo and behold, Treadwells happened. I had two parts of my life. One One was the pagan side of my life, and the other was the sort of civilian side of my life, and they didn't overlap at all. And then when I opened Treadwells, the two sides came together. And a lot of people from my academic world and my academic friends were extremely surprised. They were like, what? You? Surely, but you're so sensible. And my pagan friends were like, where, where did this other surname come from? Where did this surname come to? Did you get married? I'm like, no, that's my, that's my legal name that you've never known for 15 years. So, mm. <laughs> But the vision for it was really inspired by things that were happening in late 19th century London, which is when you had the Order of the Golden Dawn, which was very, very huge and influential. And it was a magical order that was full of actors and actresses and poets and creative people, as well as translators and Hebrew scholars and magical scholars. It was a renaissance and it lasted for about 10 or 15, 20 years. And I just thought well, if it can happen once it can happen again. But what it does requires it requires a place where people can meet. Online is wonderful, but something happens when people meet in person. So in order to have people meet in person, you have to have a premises and there is a 3 300 year old tradition of the bookshop being the place that people who are magical, occulty, witchy where they meet. You know, we don't meet in churches, where we meet is in bookshops. It's an amazing place. I work with incredible people. My colleagues and our volunteers are the most interesting, nice, generous, beautiful souls. We're open seven days a week because people come from everywhere and on their way to airports, on their way to train stations, and I don't want to miss anybody who wants to come through our door.
0: That was the vision. I love that. So when I think about London, I do think about that long legacy of occult bookshops. Shops like Watkins and Atlantis Bookshop come to mind, and I have a sense that you are not a competitive person, so I'm wondering... With this long legacy of other bookshops and with this existence of other bookshops, how do you see Treadwells as perhaps being unique? Did you have something different that you were hoping Treadwells would offer? Absolutely.
1: For sure. We had a sense that what we could offer that the others didn't was the link between the wider cultural community and the esoteric world. I think just because we're, we're next to the British Museum, I'm a former medieval historian. Most of my friends that are not occultly inclined are scholars of one sort or another. And I thought there's a tremendous opportunity there that we can build some bridges with the curatorial world, with the art historical world, with the scholarly history world, with anthropologists. And I very much see the history of magic as like a strand within Western culture. And it's a strand that has traditionally been very embarrassing to high culture. It's been embarrassing to scholarship and academia. Uh, But it's absolutely essential. It's as much as a a part of human life as, as religion or science, all of which are very respectable strands of intellectual inquiry. So that's what we do. So if you come to Treadwells, you'll see... Books on magic, but you'll also see, you know, anthropologies of northern Nigeria. You know, secondhand books to do with, you know, eighteenth-century literature. You'll find Dickens. You'll find Jane Austen. Um, you know, whatever is going on in nineteenth-century esoteric life. You know, spiritualism, séances. They're sat just next to other 19th century literature and studies of other parts of 19th century cultural history the two other main long-standing esoteric bookshops they have their own niche as well Watkins has a fair bit of magic and they also very much have an amazing collection of eastern mysticism and eastern religion and eastern spirituality they are the best in the world for that And they do a huge selection of of personal development and new age, which we don't do. Mm. Uh, Atlantis is very small. Uh, The premises is tiny. It's wonderful that the same premises is there as was in 1922. Very, very highly curated, small selection. The other thing that we're able to do because we chose a space that could do it is have an events program and a lecture program and a classes program. That was part of the vision from the beginning we started with parties and lectures, and then we moved into classes later.
0: Yes, and I believe the first time that I visited Treadwell's, and my goodness, I don't even remember how many years ago it was, but you were doing this ritual to Mercury, and I remember showing up to the bookshop, having not Met you in your context yet? We had only met in New York and going into your subterranean space and really feeling like I was, as we say in our community, between worlds. There's something about going underground and meeting with kindred spirits that is so deeply magical.
1: Yeah, the space is really important that people can do that, just as because, again, there's that strand of, of people needing to find each other in real space. We're socialized primates. We need to know how somebody feels, how they smell, how they laugh, how they look at us. If we're going to consider collaborating with them in a spiritual way, in a magical way, or in a creative way, So I'm all about the pouring the wine and staying up late together and having ceremonies and and having parties together. We can find each other in in a natural environment.
0: Absolutely. And England has such a rich history of witchcraft and certainly communal witchcraft and other esoteric meeting groups. You know, you already mentioned the Order of the Golden Dawn and you know, certainly the birth of Wicca can be traced to England. Do you feel connected to specifically English magic? Do you think there is a such thing as English magic?
1: I think there is. There's English ways of doing everything, and um, they're quite communal. They are quite understated. Members of the Golden Dawn made a promise they would never mention the existence of the Golden Dawn. It, it, it didn't exist in, in any sort of public sense. You know, It was all William Butler Yeats died without ever having publicly stated that he was a member of a magical order because he made a promise and they all made a promise that they wouldn't do that. So there's the tremendous English understatement that definitely happens and that also extended to Wicca with a few people who decided that they were going to be public about it, but the vast majority, they were sort of spokespeople so that the rest of everybody could... Have it be so understated that it was a private part of their lives. English people don't talk about politics or religion together. Certainly religion is not spoken about. And if your religion is a witchcraft-based religion or a pagan religion, it is equally not spoken about. So I think there's a fair bit of that, that is very English. There's a certain politeness. Mm-hmm. Th- things don't get heated in the same way that I see in North America. The, the downside of that is an equally long tradition of hypocrisy. But there you go. You no, know, I did. I did come on your show to do cultural commentary. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we won't dive too deep into controversy, I promise. But one of the things that I learned specifically from you was also about how it seems to me the history of witchcraft, and specifically English witchcraft in this case, or English occultism, is this blurring together of art making and magic making. And, you know, certainly I think this exists in all cultures and contexts, but, you know, I remember you came to Observatory, the arts and events space that I helped co-run, and you gave this beautiful talk about the Golden Dawn And you really underscored how it was so many artists and creative people who were driving this. And and then I think about Wicca, and I think about how poetry is such an important element of a lot of those rituals and ceremonies and utterances and incantations, and, and how so much of magic is about making your own tools and so forth. So was that something that was clear to you when you were first introduced to the path? Or was that just something that came through to you in scholarship?
1: It came to me from experience. The first book that I read that moved me profoundly about paganism and witchcraft was Margot Adler's Drawing Down the Moon, national public radio journalist and herself, a Wiccan priestess, and a beautiful writer. So her writing is journalistic but poetic, if I, if I can use those words. I don't know. You know she, she just wrote so eloquently and with such nuance about the pagan community and, and about pagan spirituality. So then when I got further involved and I got deeper into it, I reached into certain points with certain people who have a very, very fine sense of language and poetry and where ceremony ceremonial poetry is like part of the architecture of ritual. And it was from that point that I realized uh, years and years and years of practice that I developed just a profound appreciation for word, for sound, for breath. And then it looped back to the fact i have been an avid poetry reader since I was six years old. It doesn't surprise me that I ended up with people with a very, very fine sense of poetry and poetic language and ritual with whom I chose to kind of make my Wiccan pledges, as it were. Yes, It's so funny because there's this dichotomy that you sometimes get in the language around pagan ritual and about witchcraft ritual, which is like, ooh, are you a kind of person who's able to channel spontaneously and give utterances with a God speaking through you? Or... False binary. Are you one of those people who memorizes stilted words by rote and recites them in a formal, uninspired fashion? Mm right? And I, I'm like, wow, okay. So here we have uh, this, this binary set up you have to choose between A or B. And there's clearly one answer, which is I'm a true spiritual magical person. And the other, which is like, I'm a failure answer. But the I'm a failure answer is where some traditions of witchcraft, including, you know, ones that are very strong in, in, in England, you know, the ones that come from Gardner, for example, where poetry is essential, poetry that that comes forward from a person while they're in a state of semi-trance transcendence carried on word transcendence carried on the breath the shape of vibration that happens when a poem is well known to a space and to the ear and to the psyche is, is profoundly beautiful you know speak to any catholic about the recitation of the hail mary for example so ah yeah That speaks somewhere deep to my soul, the repetition of it, the cultural shared context of it, the way that silence works with word when the word is delicate and points to mystery is is very, very powerful. Whenever anybody says, ah, but do you channel or do you have to recite? I'd be like, well, let's go back a few steps and talk. Let's let's try to approach this in a different way.
0: I love that. I love that. On that note, we're going to take a very quick break and we'll be right back. So I'm obviously a big fan of witchcraft as a tool for changing your life, but it is absolutely no replacement for professional therapy. I should know because I've been seeing a therapist for most of my adult life, and it has helped me so much with anxiety, trauma, the blues, and also just the day-to-day stresses that come up for all of us. That's why I'm so happy to tell you about BetterHelp. BetterHelp is making therapy more accessible for people because they offer online counseling. That's right. You can now connect to BetterHelp's professional counselors from the privacy of your own computer or phone. And so it's incredibly convenient. And you can get help at your own pace by scheduling secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and texting. Better helps licensed professional counselors specialize in depression, stress, anxiety, hello, relationships, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem. In other words, pretty much everything that human beings deal with at some point in their lives. And everything you share is 100% confidential. Also good to know is that if your counselor isn't a good fit for any reason, no problem. You can request a new one at any time for no additional charge, and you can get set up for your first session in under 24 hours. BetterHelp is making therapy more accessible and more affordable. It even has financial aid for those who qualify. And best of all, Witchwave listeners get 10% off the first month of counseling by using offer code WhichWave. That's all one word, WhichWave. So if you, like me, could use a little extra help sometimes, don't hesitate. Mental well-being is so important. Please go to betterhelp.com slash witchwave where you'll fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash witchwave for 10% off your first month. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Christina Oakley-Harrington. So, Christina, we were talking about this wonderful legacy of writers and poets and artists. Something else that I learned specifically from you was how prominent women actually were in some of these esoteric movements. I think Gerald Gardner gets a lot of press, certainly Aleister Crowley gets a lot of press when it comes to kind of who were the fathers of 19th and 20th century Western occultism. But you have lectured about the women in some of these movements who were primary creators and evolvers of witchcraft and the occult. Can you talk a little bit about some of the women that speak to your heart or that you wish more people knew about?
1: The Order of the Golden Dawn, which is often framed wrongly as a sort of old boy, Freemasonic, old men with beards type of magical order, which wasn't. It was mostly young creatives in their 30s doing amazing things with very, very beautiful language and in a slightly formal style. But the time was formal. But their inspirations were, were twofold. One was Madame Blavatsky, who founded Theosophy. These were their forebears. The other forebear was somebody I wish everybody knew about named Anna Kingsford. And she ran a hermetic, i.e. occult organization in London, That hugely inspired the young people who set up the Golden Dawn and and ran it. And she was a wealthy woman. Women can become prominent if they have money because money buys independence and money buys things that allow a woman to not have to be silent, like marriage. Anyway, Anna Kingsford was a woman who got herself a medical degree because she wanted to save animals and she was an anti-vivisection activist her entire life. She did her medical degree in France and refused to do the vivisection on the animals and got her degree there nonetheless.
0: And, Christina, vivisection, do you mean dissection? What does that mean exactly? Vivisection is where you do dissection
1: on live animals. Oh, and my that,
0: goodness. Of course.
1: Uh, that, that's done as part of a, a doctor's training. She couldn't get a medical degree in England because they wouldn't do it for women, so she got hers in France. Then she was a, a vegetarian and she was an occultist. Uh, she was a very spiritual and mystically inclined person and people who met her loved her. She was wise, she was kind, she was beautiful and a young William Butler Yeats, the poet, magician and other young creatives who came to her circle who then went off to do their own thing. She's silent in the histories, pretty much, but she was hugely important. She was very Christian. Uh, we can understand her Christianity in in a mystical kind of cosmic sense, and I think she's well worth a look. If you're looking for somebody edgy and dark, she's not your woman. But she was
0: kind. Oh my goodness. Well, I think we need kindness and bravery and all of those beautiful things always, but specifically now for sure.
1: She's my non-witch. Amongst my witches, the one who intrigues me, I don't know enough about her, is a woman named Rosamond Zabin. And she was in Gerald Gardner's circle of friends, or rather I should say Gerald Gardner was in her circle of friends. Mm. There's a historian called Philip Heselton who's done amazing research and he's still finding out more even as we speak. And what has become very clear is that Gerald Gardner came into her circle um, down in the New Forest area and he joined a loose circle of friends. And at some point that circle of friends called themselves witches. And we like to have founders. General society loves to have founders and we understand things if they have founders and they have gurus and they have – Fearless leaders, right? Sure. So the easiest way to describe witchcraft is is to call it Gardnerian, is to say Gerald Gardner is the father of modern witchcraft. Well, yeah, but no, but yeah, but no. Gerald Gardner was in the circle of people who were very private, who had taken oaths of secrecy. Victorian society, Edwardian society, is full of secret societies, become a Freemason. Everyone understands taking oaths of secrecy. And, by the way, what you do in your front room with your friends – be it a seance, be it a ceremony, be it a bit of druidry. Certainly in English society, it's not something you talk about with your neighbors. You don't advertise it as an identity. Gerald Gardner is in Rosamund Sabine circle. He's the one who writes the book, but he always says through witchcraft today, he doesn't say, I'm the father of modern Wicca. He is always saying, well, I'm just a member. Yes. The witch does these things. I don't know why.
0: and mm-hmm.
1: witch, witches always wear a necklace when they do a ceremony. I don't know Why? I am a simple member. Right? Philip Heselton realized this is not how people write when they're making something up in isolation. And it's not really how people write when they're thinking something up on their own. It is how people write when they are introduced to a circle of people who are doing something who either who don't say very much or who are kind of feeling their own way. So Rosamond Sabine is my mystery witch. She and another woman in that circle of friends who went by the nickname Daffo. Yes. and was Edith. She was very much a witch. She was Gerald Gardner's partner, uh, magical partner. She was a high priestess of the Southern Coven. And it is understood by Philip Hessels, and this is his research, not mine, that he has circumstantial evidence that, in fact, Daffo, gave a, an initiation ceremony to Gerald. We don't call it Daphonian witchcraft because Daffo and Rosamond Sabine had one thing to say about publicity, which was absolutely leave us out. hmm hmm Women who are not seen as part of the formation of, of witchcraft because they said, leave me out of the public record.
0: hmm It's so true. And I have such mixed feelings about that because, of course, on the one hand, I have immense respect for anybody who just wants to do their work and is not seeking publicity and, you know, who has taken a sacred vow and honors that vow. On the other hand, you know, I want more women to get credit for their work and their innovation, Bless him, Philip Heselton
1: wrote a beautiful biography of Dory Valiente,
0: and he's working on this
1: study of the, the new forest coven, and that should be coming out. So I think when we make these offerings to our ancestors, I was, you know, particularly on the women's side,
0: um, it's important to to remember the unnamed. Absolutely. I'm so glad that you brought up Doreen Valianti again, because she's someone that the deeper I get into my own research, the deeper I fall in love with her. She just seems like she was such an incredible spirit. And I wonder if you can tell people a little bit about her, because I think she's still a name that is not on most people's minds.
1: Oh, my gosh. If I say to people, like, you know, what, what book should I read about witchcraft? I said, well, there's some great books about contemporary witchcraft. But if you want to have a wonderful person who's a witch for her whole adult life, who dove into folklore, who was immensely creative and practical and sensible, Doreen's your woman. She's right there with her folklore. She's right there with her get out there, be in nature. She's right there with, like, you know, just find your way. Doreen's the woman. She was a young woman. She seemed possibly to have worked for the spy service. Yes. Second World War. And um, certainly her notebooks read like spy notebooks, even when she's just like writing up like, conversations with friends. I mean, there's a a certain way of writing that suggests to me that she did have some kind of secret service experience. And she read some stuff. She wanted to be a witch. She met Gerald Gardner. She liked him very much. And the coven, right? We always say Gerald Gardner. It's like, oh, yeah, well, who wants to follow a dirty old man? Just because everybody else says, don't use our names. And one person says, okay, well, look, I'm very wealthy. I have an independent means. I can use my name. It's okay. I'm retired. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway, Doreen meets a coven of eight people and Daffo. And she, in 1953, midsummer, she undergoes the initiation, becomes a witch. And her, her journey begins. She, she had marriages. She was bereaved. She was widowed. She remarried. Then she had a boyfriend. Then she moved. She moved on the South Coast. She explored folklore. I think she was at that point in her 70s. She was a member of a coven run by a woman who was like 32. Very spontaneous, creative group of folks led by a woman named Sally. It's my understanding. It was, it was her last group that she was active in. She was great. She was just great. You know, she was very sensible. She had this West country accent. Now what you must do is be very sensible. <laughs>
0: <laughs> both feet on the ground. Absolutely both feet on the ground. Well, I love that you're mentioning this English sensibility, because one of the things that has always attracted me to you, Christina, is that you do seem to balance all of these different kind of opposing forces within yourself. You are someone who I think of as deeply magical, but very, very sensible. You do have your scholarly background. And I think for people who first meet you, well, I can tell you, because a lot of people when, when I send them your way, they tell me, oh my goodness, Christina, she's so lovely and she's so impressive. I mean, you're, you're a brilliant person. So I would love to hear more about you and your story. How did you get drawn into the world of witchcraft? I have to take a moment because I'm blushing. <laughs> Thank you for your kind words. How did I get into
1: witchcraft? Golly. I grew up in different countries. I'm an expatriate kid. My dad joined the UN in the 1960s, and we went to West Africa. Then we went to, lived in Burma for three years, and then, then Chile. My dad is English Canadian, and my mother's American. And I was sent to go to high school in the US um, in a suburb outside of New York City, and then to university. And the way that I understood religion was sort of an anthropologist view. Because I had grown up with many different religions. You know, West African tribal religion was the first religion I was exposed to. After that, I was immersed in, in Theravada Buddhism, which is Burmese style Buddhism. And we would go to the pagoda. My mother would always say, you know, you will find the spirituality of the place in, you know, in the culture that it's grown up in. You know, so when you're in Burma, we go to the pagoda. When we're in Liberia, we go to the ceremonies there. You will find what is meaningful there as a respectful guest mm-hmm. so I was repatriated to an American high school I didn't quite understand what the religion of suburban New York was <laughs> <laughs> oh yes <laughs> I was looking for the local folk religion and um and I I, I struggled you know when I, we were up in the Andes when I was 12 and 13 you know we'd go to Machu Picchu and I you know drink mate with the the old ladies what do we do here? Well, you make an offering here and you put flowers there. Okay. This is what we do. And there I am in like you know, the suburbs of Del Mar, New York and saying, well, what do we do here? And they're like, well, you go to the mall.
0: I was literally just about to say that you go to the <laughs> mall, you go to your little bookshop and you dig into the dustiest corners and find yourself a spellcraft book.
1: Yes, yeah, so I kind of did that. And I floundered quite. I mean, I, I didn't do well for a few years. But when I was 23, I met a guy, lovely, lovely guy. And, and he had just come off a Lakota reservation. He was a uh, half Lakota and half Irish, Boston Irish. Anyway, he said to me, what you're describing suggests me you should look at this thing called Wicca. And I'd never heard the word before. And he lent me a book. And that book was Margot Adler's Drawing Down the Moon. And I stayed up all night reading it. And I, I remember phoning him from a payphone, because we still had payphones then. And I said, Jonathan, you were absolutely right. That is my inner spirituality. It does exist. That is the thing that I, I I couldn't find at the mall. Yeah. So that's how it was. And then I started, you know, meeting other pagans, meeting a few Wiccan Covens around Philadelphia, which is where I'd gone to university. And then I Sort of made a decision that I was going to move back to the country my father's people are from. So I moved to, to first to Scotland, where my grandmother's from, and then and then down to London. My granddad's family is from Kent, so I hit London, and I I think within within 24 hours I met actually the people who I ended up spending the rest of my spiritual life with oh my goodness not in a village but actually in the largest city in the whole of the UK I thought oh, I was going to be in a Scottish village it's going to be a thatched hut it's going to be an old lady that's who's going to be my mentor and actually it was in the middle of the city which is of course right because that's where misfits go misfits go to cities they don't stay in villages maybe the, the ones who do I have huge respect for but people who need other people who cannot make it in suburbia or the villages go to
0: cities That's absolutely right. That is so, so true, Christina. I love that. And so can you talk a little about how old you were when you went through initiation? I mean, as much as you're comfortable sharing, I don't want to push too hard here because I know that secrecy is still quite valuable, you know, to you and your community.
1: I was 26 and I felt like I was too old. It's so funny the way you think. I was like, oh my god! You know, if only I'd found this and I was 17 or 16, like I would have had such a head start. I was 26. I'm not 26 anymore. <laughs> so i guess if, if anybody is here and you're like, haven't kind of found your niche yeah. yet, it's okay. 26 is still very, very young. And and uh, you know, because when we're facing the big mystery, we all die beginners, really. You know, we all die beginners. So a little bit about how it is, you know, here or how it was with me is that in the U.K., at that time, and that was 1989, 1990, the way that things were structured—that if you were going to be apprenticed, it happened in a in a group situation, a coven situation—and the covens in the UK there wasn't the plethora of new traditions. So when Wicca went to the US, it went with a chap called Ray Buckland, who did Bucky's Big Blue Book, yep, and that generated a great number of other books, and there was this enormous creative tradition of traditions, you know, like how do you want your tradition to work? How do you want the initiations to work? Do you want to have them at all? Do you want to work in a group? How is that going to structure? And in the UK, none of that happened. It was simply handed down with with a lot of flexibility, generosity of spirit, creativity, individual style from group to group. The biggest parallel that I can draw is with, with martial arts. Hear me out. Hear me out. If you do some kind of martial arts, there are different strands, And they're all handed down. And probably they they evolve over time. You know, the way that certain moves are done cannot stay the same time after time after time because human beings don't. And people always bow, you know, at the end of your class or the beginning of your class to your sensei Mm -hmm. in honor of of the tradition, right? It does not make it a cult, right? Right. And there is variation. And people kind of do their own style a bit. People sort of do classes for a while work on their own for a bit, their life changes. But nobody says, oh my God, you still do Kung Fu. You haven't made up such and such and such your own system. If you don't make up your own system, you're a slave to someone else's. I was like, no, I do Kung Fu. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I did this style for a while. Then I moved to San Francisco and I joined another place. They do things slightly differently. That's okay. It comes from a slightly different place in China or blah, blah, blah. It's very fluid. It reminds me of rivers. You know, rivers that just flow. And so uh, that suited me. You know, I like being mentored. If you said to me, oh, Christina, teach yourself anything. Like you can teach yourself a language. I'm like, that's nice. You can. Um, I will procrastinate. I'm very disorganized. My brain cannot discipline itself. But if you put me in a structure and you have put me with nice people who encourage me, I do really well.
0: Yeah, yeah. But I think this brings up a really important point and something that I... I'm sifting through all the time as a writer, but also in terms of the language that I use in reference to myself, which is the difference between Wicca and paganism and the word witch. And I've said it many times on this podcast before, I made a decision not to call myself Wiccan out of respect for the many people who have gone through initiation and who seem to be following to me, even though it's fluid, a very distinct path and lineage. Whereas the way that I practice is very eclectic. It is coming out of a more solitary, self-taught, background, although I did study with a green witch for several years, though she doesn't call herself Wiccan. So I'm just wondering what your relationship is to all of those terms. Language is amazing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> never stops moving, right? If the
1: Wiccan tradition is like a river, then, then language is just like the stock market. It's all over the place. It doesn't say the same from day to day. Mm. The biggest differentiations in, in the use of words is, is regional. In the UK, we did not have the publication of any do it yourself book that made any significant impact. And so, up until the 90s, really, 2010, if somebody was of an older generation, if anybody came and said, Oh, I'm Wiccan, to them it meant that they had, and we only have one tradition, is the Gardnerian Alexandrian tradition here, right? So, there's like, Oh, that meant you were in, you had been apprenticed, or a member of a group or had been a member of a group and had been through the, that that ceremony. I read a book that was imported from the U.S. and that spoke to me and it says that you you can adopt this term. And they were like, oh, no, 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 that's not true. But what I, what I wanted to say to them, that's not true in your country, which is England, which is England before the internet, which is England before the, the importation of, of American paperbacks. What happened in the U.S. was a very different story. Yes. Buckland, left his group or his group dissolved or something like that. Who knows? It's his private business. But he he wrote a book and he said, CX Wicca. And then he did Big Book big book of Witchcraft. And he said, this is the word for all of that. Wicca is that word, Christina? Sorry. Wicca was that word. Hmm. And, and of course, then that's replicated by all the many, many, many writers following on from that. Then we fast forward to the internet being formed. And there were some very, very confusing years for people in England. And I I think people have settled down in the past 10 years, understanding that language evolved differently in two different places. So I try to stay away from the words. It's less about what I am, more about what I do. Mm. I mean, I know what I am. and. Actually, what I am, what you are, what what we do, and what we are—it's it's not contingent on definition.
0: <sighs> See, and and I breathe so much easier hearing you say that because I have to say this is something I grappled with when I was writing my book. And one of the criticisms that my book gets is, well, she doesn't really define what a witch is, and it's like, well, exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because <laughs> yeah.
1: Because because the word eludes definition. In fact, most language eludes definition. In fact, historians don't define their terms. Mm, mm, mm. Any academic historian, any scholarly historian, they do not define their terms. That is a, a beautiful discipline. I actually love that academic discipline. It understands that language is contingent on cultural context, geographical context, what people use that word to mean at that moment in that place
0: with whatever agenda they have. Uh, It's so interesting. And and I'm just thinking about myself. You know, for me, my North Stars were people like Starhawk and, you know, some of the writers coming out of, like, the U.S. feminist goddess movement. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those writers weren't calling themselves – I mean, there's Dianic Wicca, certainly, Mm -hmm. from Z Budapest and so on. And I know she has become a bit of a problematic – Figure, And we've talked about that on other shows. But that said, I think a lot of people who here in the U.S. came out of these feminist magical groups evolved away from using the term Wicca, at least in my limited experience. So Mm. it's so interesting to hear your perspective on it. Well, my perspective is, again, I mean, I lived in the U.S. from, you know, through the
1: 1980s. You are very much more on the pulse of what language people are using, what language they're moving away from. Certainly amongst, as we've had the Internet and as people in England and the U.K. and Ireland are speaking to people in the U.S. all the time, people are evolving their language
0: so that we understand what we mean better. And that's an in process. Absolutely. Are there certain terms that you're finding people are using more or less, or would you just rather not say? No, if
1: you were saying people are using in, in the US are using the word Wiccan less in a way that perhaps an older generation did, so is it not to confuse? That's interesting to me. Yeah.
0: So when I look at, for example, a lot of the modern witchcraft, and this is a bigger discussion that I'll save for after the next break, I would say a lot of people who are practicing witchcraft these days do not call themselves Wiccan. At least they're not doing so, I don't know, on Instagram. <laughs> um, so it, yeah, that, that's, that's certainly been my, my experience for sure. Cool. It's fascinating. Fascinating stuff. Um, so speaking of that break, why don't we take one now? And we'll be right back. I am so excited to be the first to announce a long-awaited debut from your favorite candle maker and mine, Mithras Candle, and that is Mithras Black. Mithras Black is a gorgeous new line of black beeswax candles in their signature style made with a plant-based dye. These handmade tools have an ancient and mystical past inspired by new discoveries in light science. As the company grows, Mithras Candle are balancing their natural golden beeswax with the mystery and transformative power of black candles. There are times when we are faced with an unknown. How can we process and transmute the pain of grief, the vulnerability of waiting? When we must honor moon cycles, process hard feelings, heal, surrender, or cast protection. When we are tired and hopeless, what we need is restoration of spirit. Mithras Black is for those times. Black candles have been traditionally associated with protection and absorption of negative energy. Plus, they look absolutely gorgeous. Our friends in Philadelphia are now asking for your support with a big push in crowdfunding on Indiegogo for new equipment and supplies to bring these beauties into being. There are so many juicy reward offerings, including all our favorite classic Mithras candles now in black with limited edition wearable emblems one-of-a-kind cauldron candle vessels from ceramicist Clarissa Eck, and a custom Mithras candle photo print from witch photographer extraordinaire Courtney Brooke Hall. Visit the Mithras candle campaign today, and all early bird contributors will receive a free pair of black votives. Go to MithrasCandle.com, that's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com, and click on the campaign link, or you can go to their Instagram account. On behalf of Mithras Candle, thank you for your support. Wishing warmth, light, and shadow to all. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Christina Oakley Harrington. Christina, we have been talking a lot about books and writers and words. And one of the texts that I adore, and that I know you adore too, is a book that came out in 1899 called Aradia: Gospel of the Witches, which was written by Charles Leland. And I know you adore this book because you wrote a beautiful essay for a version of this which came out a few years ago. And so this is a text that in my experience a lot of practicing witches today are not familiar with and I'd love to shine a little bit more light on this text. So, what is a radia gospel of the witches and how did you come to encounter this beautiful piece of writing? This is the coolest piece of writing ever. <laughs> I
1: just say just like listeners run don't walk. Right, just get it, find it, Google it. Even as we're speaking, it's amazing poetry. And then there's like bits in it that you're like, "What the hell is going on here?" <laughs> uh, in, in this story, you have a story of Diana and her daughter Aradia, and all sorts of things going on, flying around, beginning of the world. You've got them being called on for help. They're these supernatural beings who are goddesses and. They are patrons of witchcraft. And there is a speech that is given that Aradia says, Once in the month, and better it be when the moon is full, then shall ye assemble in some secret place and adore the spirit of me, who am queen of all witcheries. There shall ye assemble, ye who are fain to know all sorcery, yet have not won its deepest secrets. To To these will I teach things that are as yet unknown. So this goddess says, I am your patron goddess. You want to learn these things? Talk to me. Make me offerings, and I'll teach you. And do it under the full moon. She, she's the moon. She's the green earth. She's the mystery on the waters, and she is gonna teach you the secrets. But you got to worship her. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that I think I put in that little essay was that there's a relationship of threat and bribery which any catholic uh, who studies medieval catholicism will be familiar with people people threaten and bribe the saints and uh, there's a certain amount of threatening and bribery as well that goes on there like do these things for me good things will happen you'll get lots of lots of gifts for me and lots of offerings if you do these things to me if not really it's not going i'm going to do bad things to you so so this it's a, a two way relationship the other thing i really love about it is that it is profoundly can we say this nicely? I say anti-capitalist. Yes, it's anti-hierarchical, and it's anti-capitalist. It's anti-feudal. There's one part of the the speech of Aradia where she says, "And you will be naked in your rights is a sign that you be really free. You're going to be naked in your rights, and you will be naked in your rights until all of your oppressors are dead." So she's speaking to the working people, and so uh, the oppressors in Italy. Of course, is the whole feudal system, it's the lord of the manor system. It's a system that says if you're born a farm worker, you're going to die a farm worker, that there's no social movement. It also says extreme hierarchy is profoundly unjust. Mm. This is a really strong text. It comes out of a part of an Italian society, a fragment of its Italian society, which is unafraid to speak in the most bold terms about what should happen to people who let other people die in poverty when they're rich.
0: Exactly. I mean, there is, let's be honest, there are themes of poisoning and, you know, seeking revenge on the oppressor. And it's interesting because I find I spend a lot of my time saying, no, 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 witches, we're we're really nice. We're really positive. We really don't want to hurt anybody. I don't do any kind of malevolent magic, you know? And yet a text like this, at least from an allegorical standpoint, is very much saying, like, Don't let people fuck with you, right? It really is. Pam, you're
1: so, you put it, it was like, this is, it's a voice for justice. It's an activist voice. The Roddy Gospel of the Witches is not today's witches. Bible, right? It's a text that is made a huge impact on, on an earlier generation. And I think it's a text that every witch should read. I think it's a text that reminds us that even, you know, these, it's like, oh, you know, these, these old witches, you know, the ones around Gerald Gardner, Rosamund Zabine, Doreen Villiers, oh, they're fuddy-duddies. We're young and transgressive. Well, this text was really important to them. You know, they had a really strong sense of social justice. They had a really strong sense of, of equality. I mean, who was it who said, we will do our rituals naked, Inspired by Leyland. Mm. Funnily enough, that was that was the circle around Rosamond and Doreen and Daffo and Gerald Gardner. They felt that what the Aradia Gospel of the Witches was saying in, about that fact was that as a sign that you'd be really free. And when that text made its way into... In into the tradition of the people uh, around Daffo and Rosamond and Gerald, they left off until all your oppressors be dead. But what they left was when they when they adopted part of that text, they kept in the words as a sign that ye be really free. And that it also says, you know, all acts of love and pleasure are my rituals. And and there's a transgression about being joyful, when when you're meant to be afraid. There's a transgression about being out in nature when you're meant to be co- cowering in your hovel to dance, make feast, make music and love as though you were a free person. So this is kind of thing when we're in really hard times and we're really hard times this month, this week, this year. I try to remember that to know, have a meal with my friends and to laugh and to dance and to put on loud music. That's an act of freedom. It's an act of rebellion.
0: Oh, Christina, I have tears in my eyes because... First of all, I think I just personally needed to hear that today, but also because when I was preparing for this interview and spending more time with this beautiful text, exactly these points sprung out to me, you know, this idea of independence and this idea also too that hierarchies and the patriarchy is its own kind of evil, right? Right. I mean, it's funny, witches have this awful reputation in some contexts of being evil and and satanic and diabolical. But for me, the true evil are the people who exploit others and people who have enough and don't share that with anyone else or people who have more than enough and not only don't share it with anyone else, but exploit the people beneath them. That is evil. You know, the people who are in control of some parts of, I'll say, my government, and I think you would probably agree your government right now, exhibit to me actions of evil, traits of evil, you know, harming other people when they could be helping them. And, you know, my hope is that in this age that we're in, and it's a very dark time, but that a lot of that evil is being brought to light so that we can all collectively then choose to make something more beautiful and more free and more fair.
1: Yeah, this, the, the, often the word freedom is applied as though other people don't matter. And one of the things if you tease out from the best parts of a Aradia Gospel of the Witches is that freedom is freedom for everybody and freedom to share and freedom to be free from fear. That's a tremendous freedom to be free from fear which to me says access to healthcare, which means you know basic income, or knowing that your neighbors know who you are, knowing that you help one another when you're in trouble, that allows an inner freedom. And until we have that simply to make a sacred space, to, make, to block it out, whether that sacred space is like a disco or a party with friends, or it's a ceremony, to make a sacred space that in this space, even though in the wider world, I'm living in fear of eviction, I cannot get access to medical care. My insurance has shut me down. I'm going to put that aside for these three hours under the full moon. Even if it's inside my apartment, I'm going to put on incense. I'm going to put on music. I'm going to dance. I'm going to feel my body will make me free. I'm going to, to claim my voice. I'm going to claim my body and I will dance and sing and make love and eat and toast my friends and I'm going to be free for this time. They cannot take me away.
0: That you can't have. That I will hold. Exactly, Christina. Exactly. Thank you so much for that reminder. And I'm sure I can already sense other listeners thanking you too. I think we all need to keep those words very, very close to our hearts and enact them as much as we're able to in this day and age. We're winding down, Christina, but I do want to ask you, as someone who's seen a few cycles of witchcraft kind of rise and fall in popularity, what do you make of the current surge in interest in witches and in witchcraft? Do you think it's a positive thing? Are there things we should be keeping in mind or looking out for? How are you feeling about witchcraft being more popular today?
1: I love the idea that the image of the witch as a free, poetic person who's a rebel, who's strong in the face of oppression, in the face of being stoned and persecuted and marginalized. I love that that image has become a cloak of empowerment for young women and non-binary people and young men. I love that. I absolutely love that. It's another step. I'm also a different thing to say, okay, actually, I'm going to be a person who reverences nature and the moon, and I'm going to make a lifelong commitment to walking this kind of a path. I think both are good. But I love that the witch is that image, you know, which you speak about so eloquently. I mean, we gave this two-hander lecture in Manhattan a few years ago where you talked about the image of the witch in popular culture, in high culture, in painting. That image is like, yeah, there were people, men and women, who stood up to being stoned, right? They went through trials. They were tortured because somebody decided that they were different and they were going to push them to the edge of society. Mm -hmm. And they stood it. And I can too, because I know I'm not the first person to suffer that way. I love that the image of the witch is doing that for people. The things I think I've said be careful of is be careful of giving away your own power. You know, the stars will move back and forth, the planets will go in and out of retrogression. We are we ourselves are beautiful stars. And be not afraid when Mercury goes retrograde. Be not afraid when Saturn crosses this or that. You know, you're strong too. And the stars have always made their beautiful passages. They twinkle down on us with love, I feel. So that's my caution is be not afraid of what astrological things are happening. It's hard times, but your body and your voice, your love and your friends are hugely, hugely, magically powerful. And I want people to remember
0: that. Mm, Gorgeous, Christina. I want to end by shining the light back onto Treadwell's, your magnificent, magical, crucially important space. I'm reading all the time that in this period of economic downfall with this virus and this episode is going to air in a couple weeks time so who knows what the world is going to be even as quickly as that but I know right now in this moment bookshops in particular are having a tough time so I wanted to ask, how is Treadwells doing right now? And most importantly, how can we support you, Christina? And how can we support Treadwells?
1: Thank you so much. It's a very scary time for bookshops. And also, I want to reach out and say to everybody who's in hospitality industries, nobody's hit harder than them and people who are right on the front line of of Daily Choice purchasing Treadwells is going online. We're doing more and more online. We're having more of our lectures online. And when this goes out, there'll be some lectures. They're going to have some interviews, some chats that we've had with people. And people can support us by, you know, just at very low cost purchasing those. And a lot of the content's going to be free. We have an amazing online shop. It's really curated. Um, All the books in our online shop are ones that we've chosen out of the tens of thousands that are available. And um, we've written our little write-ups on our website just say why we think this is worthwhile. And, and who it's really for. And it's not just a, and a copy and paste of a blurb.
0: So, and we post anywhere. Which means you ship anywhere. Sorry, just translating for my American brain. So we will ship anywhere in the world. Fabulous. Fabulous. So everyone, if you're listening, please do order your books from Treadwells. And, and what is that website, Christina? It's treadwells-london.com. Fabulous. And, of course, we can all follow you on Instagram. And what was that handle again? On Instagram, it's Treadwells Books. And on Twitter, it's Treadwells. Fabulous. I believe in my bones and my heart and my spirit and my soul that Treadwells is one of the truly precious places and spaces in the world. So please, everyone, if you are home and you are looking for things to read, please consider ordering your books from Treadwells. You will be so glad you did. And Christina... I thank you so much for your very kind words about my work. I thank you for your hugely inspiring words for all of us. And mostly, I just thank you for existing because you are one of the great lights in my life. So, Christina, thank you so much for being on The Witch Wave.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you for for your friendship. And like everybody who's listening, you know, thanks for being there. It's really a privilege.
0: That's it for the show. Thank you again to Christina Oakley-Harrington for lighting the way with such poetry and such grace. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on The Witch Wire. The Witch Wave is produced, written, and recorded by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was edited by Rachel Jacobs. Thank you, Rachel, and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Laura Antal, and Shakita Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website, and now by Witchwave merch at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us lots of sparkly stars. It really does make a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchwavePod. And you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. Please consider picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which is available everywhere now. And if you want more Witch Wave, or you would just like to support the show, please do join us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash witchwave. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.